Genesis chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 20 through 25, although I think I'll actually read through 26. I'll be preaching on verse 26 and following next week, but I'll go ahead and read it as part of today's as well. Uh, We've been covering the creation of uh, heaven and earth uh, over the six days of creation. Uh, Last week, we looked at the creation of the sun, moon, and stars, the, the filling of the expanse with those uh, lights that would bear the light and keep the time that were already in place but now delegated to those light bearers and timekeepers, uh, especially the greater light, the sun, and the lesser light, the moon, with the stars as well. Uh, today we come to the fifth day and part of the sixth day with the creation of the animals. So let me read chapter 1, verses 20 through 25, sorry, 26. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above, the he- uh, fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray for God's blessing upon his word. Lord God, we thank you for the word that you have given to us. We thank you for your mighty works of creation and for even sustaining the work that you have done for our good even to this day. We pray that you would uh, teach us, that you would direct us and disciple us through your word. We pray that you would help us to understand and to see the world correctly as the world that you have made. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this passage on days five and the beginning of day six, we find that God fills the waters and the heavens and the dry land with living creatures. We have seen from the beginning that God created at the very beginning uh, the heavens and the earth, but at first it was dark and it was formless or shapeless. It was uh, a big blob, basically, and it lacked uh, definition and distinctness. And it was also void. It was empty. And God has been working on this project for several days. He could have done it immediately, but he has done it over multiple days, in part so that we can meditate upon these things, also as our example. He began by creating light, so it was not Uh, in complete darkness. He has been making distinctions and separations from the waters in the waters, the waters in the land. He's also been filling. He filled the dry land with uh, vegetation. He 
filled the expanse with uh, the sun, moon, and stars. But now he is creating living things, and he is filling uh, the waters, the heavens, and the dry land with these living creatures. On day five, he does the, fills the waters and the heavens, and on the sixth day, he fills the dry land. We'll find uh, next week, of course, uh, the creation of mankind, of Adam and Eve. Next week, I'll be talking of the, the image of God in more detail and what that means. But today, I want to talk about the creation of the animals, uh, the, those that live in the waters, those that fly above the earth, and those that live on dry land. On that fifth day, he, he makes the living creatures in the waters um, Notice when he says that it actually happened, not only does he talk about generally living creatures, swarms of them in the waters, but specifies the great sea creatures as well, and I might talk a little bit about that in a minute. When he talks about the uh, birds in the heavens, he kind of uses a general term that means flyers. Flyers fly uh, above the earth. That would include birds, but also is a word used to refer to insects, so the bees and the butterflies and other things that fly around, created to fill the expanse of the heavens. And they are blessed with fruitfulness. When we uh, bless, we are asking for God's blessing uh, upon whatever we're blessing. But when God blesses, he blesses. He, he, he is giving this power to the creatures to, to procreate, to multiply, uh, to be sustained uh, so that the earth is still filled with living creatures uh, today by his power. Uh, he has blessed them to fill their spheres. On the sixth day, we find that the living creatures are made on the land, even from the land. Uh, there is three kind of classes, generally speaking, of animals listed here, uh, livestock, uh, creeping things, and wild beasts, um, n- not with scientific precision here, but generally classifying the different types of land animals that we would find on the earth, and they are created according to their kinds. They're not evolved from one single organism, but they are created in their kinds to multiply according to their kinds, certainly diversity existing within those kinds. And then all of this in both cases is seen in God's eyes as good. Uh, And God saw that it was good. He says that on the fifth day. He says that on the sixth day. Uh, In fact, he says that about the animals before he proceeds to talk about the creation of man, which uh, first of all describes the animals as good. They're even good before man is on the scene, Uh, but it also kind of sets apart the animals from man as a distinct act of creation, even though they do share the same day. Now, in talking about this creation, I want to kind of structure today's sermon with three errors. Of course, addressing these errors and teaching the truth, uh, so it's a little different than what I usually do, but I want to point out three errors regarding animals and how this passage would correct us. The first error is worship of animals. The second one is contempt for animals. And the third one is apathy toward animals. Basically, thinking too highly about them, thinking too lowly of them, and not thinking about them. Uh, it's three errors that are corrected by this passage. So first error, 
the worship of animals. Don't worship the animals. <laughs> Do not worship the, crea- the creature. Worship the creator. It's a fundamental point. Some people worship the animals through uh, the idea of pantheism, that all is God. Uh, it's kind of lowering everything down to the same level and seeing all of living things kind of participating in the same divine force and worshiping that spirit, Uh, or it can happen through the elevation of of certain animals, the way that they were treated in the practice of idolatry, or even still treated, worshipped in some places today. But this text proclaims that God is their creator. The Israelites would bow down to what? A golden calf. But instead, this text would clearly point out, God is the one that made the calf. He is the one who not only made the gold that it was made from, he created all living things. And from him, they have their life, their power. He is sovereign over all. He created them and he blessed them. So as Calvin says, it is by the blessing of God that everything continues as it does. When you see the, the birds multiply and laying their eggs and building their nests, or the, birds, or the fish swarming in the seas and the salmon swimming up the streams to go back to their spawning grounds, like all of this continues today because of God's blessing. The animals themselves demonstrate the power of God and the sovereignty of God. When Job needs to be awed by God's power, God spends multiple chapters simply talking about the things that he made whether the horses or the wild ox or the behemoth and the leviathan and the ravens and uh, the living creatures he has made. Do you know everything about them? Did you make them? Do you feed them? Do you take care of all these things? God's power is especially emphasized in his creation of the great sea creatures. Um, That is brought up in verse 21. In fact, it might be significant that the word create which appeared in verse 1, first reappears in verse 21. Uh, The word made can basically be functionally equivalent to the word create in Genesis 1, but it might be especially important that he's pointing out that he created the great sea creatures, and he is completely sovereign over them. The word there, great sea creatures, can also be translated the great monsters, Uh, It is a word that can be translated sea monster or serpent or dragon. Um, The Leviathan is described with this same word for this great monster in Isaiah 21 and Psalm 74. This term, great sea creature, is sometimes used metaphorically in the Bible to describe Pharaoh or to describe the devil uh, and others. But here it's used literally, probably for a variety of animals like whales and sharks and crocodiles and the great squid and other unknown or extinct large sea creatures uh, like plesiosaurs. Remember that the largest living creature ever known to have lived on the earth still exists today. Uh, It's bigger than the dinosaurs. It's called the blue whale. And it uh, has been confirmed to get to 98 feet to weigh 219 tons. I think they said maybe like 33 elephants or something like that put together. It's a living creature and it plays in the oceans even to this day. The sperm whale, a little more dangerous, can be 68 feet, 88 tons, giant squid, 43 feet at least. There are very great sea creatures that live in the deep. 
But this especially would have been important perhaps to Israel or to the surrounding nations, since the great sea monsters were often described in pagan mythology as opposition to the gods, a force that God had to conquer at the very beginning. But here it's emphasized that God spoke them into existence, that God created the great sea creatures. They were not some force of opposition and rebellion, but they were made by his word. And just as he created the sea monsters, so he was able to overthrow Pharaoh and his host, who's portrayed in the Psalms and Isaiah as Leviathan, as the sea monster that God cut up in the uh, Red Sea and floated in its corpses to the banks. Uh, God triumphed over the dragon. Uh, He triumphed over Pharaoh. In fact, when uh, Moses throws down Aaron's stick and turns into a snake, the word snake there is the same word for monster here. You know, it must have been a really big snake. It's not called a great snake, but uh, it's the same word here for sea monster. We usually just call them sea monsters when we don't know much about them, and once we get a name for them, we don't think of them in that mysterious of a term. But they are quite interesting and vast and tremendous creatures. Psalm 148 calls these monsters of the deep to praise the Lord. Psalm 104 speaks of how God formed Leviathan to play in the great and wide sea. Job 41 speaks of the the Leviathan at great length. And even though the particular species of what he has in mind might be a matter of debate, uh, the clear point is that God's power is made known through the independence and strength of his greatest creatures. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fishhook or press down his tongue with a cord? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Who, whatever is under the whole heaven, is mine. That's what God tells Job. See the great vast creatures that I spoke into existence? Who are you to speak back to me? So consider the blue whale and the sperm whale. Consider the crocodile and the giant squid. Consider the land dinosaurs and marine reptiles we have recorded in the fossils, perhaps in the old legends of dragons. God spoke these creatures into existence. They are his creatures, and they ought to humble you before the maker of all. You know, there's today, you know, the Jurassic Park movies, Jurassic World movies, they do a good job of showing that man is not in control, but they could go a little further too. The one who made these creatures is the one that is in control over man and beast. The animals teach us to worship and obey the creator. They ought to follow the ordinances. Uh, They do follow the ordinances of their maker. They fill the earth. They fulfill their purposes. And so you also ought to serve your maker. Now, there's the air of worshiping these animals when the animals themselves point to the one who made them that we ought to worship. There's a similar air uh, of putting animals and humans on the same level. In some ways, it's the same as pantheism, except we just don't call them God, we just call them all that is. Uh, But that is uh, an air that we find today as well, and I'm including it in the same category here. This air is made to a degree in Hinduism based on its doctrine of reincarnation, don't harm any life. Uh, It also happens in secular humanism based on its doctrine of evolution. For example, there is a 
secular ethicist at Princeton University named Peter Singer, who argues that the reason we value human life over animal life is because of, basically because of prejudice, um, that we just like ourselves. Uh, he argues that, uh, this would be a wrong view, but he argues that since a severely defective human infant has less capacity for anything morally significant than many animals, we're more justified to kill him than, say, a pig. People believe that. Uh, it kind of follows from his premises. He also uses a similar argument to justify abortion, even though he recognizes that an unborn child is a living, living human being. Underlying that argument is this assumption that uh, all material reality is all that is and has been produced through this theory of evolution, uh, so that humankind is not special by any divine right. The value of life then just comes from things like consciousness or intelligence or suffering or pleasure, things that animals experience as well. And so Singer argues for right and wrong based on calculating the suffering involved in the conscious objection of the other being. Biblically, though, things are different. Human life is special, not because of a group prejudice, but because God created mankind as a unique race. Human life does not get its value primarily from its capacity to suffer or to have pleasure. It has value because it represents God. Man is God's image. To attack man is to deface his image, is to attack his representative. Also, since in a biblical view, everything is created by God, only he has the authority to kill, to destroy, to use any of it. It's his property. So rather than being able to kill unless there's a reason not to, we are only permitted to kill with God's permission. The only reason you can kill a cabbage or a rabbit because God gave you permission to do so. Genesis 1 teaches that humanity is distinguished from and is elevated above the animals by being made in God's image, as well as being made in a distinct work. God saw that that was good, and then he created man. It's a different thing. And so it degrades humans to treat them like animals. So first error, the worship of animals, the elevation of animals too much. The second error, though, is that of contempt for animals. Some people treat animals with contempt, without respect, without appreciation, without mercy. They use them without constraint. We can do whatever we want, treating animals as if they were soulless machines. They don't have souls. I can do what I want with them. The Bible does not distinguish animals from man by saying that we have souls and they don't. The Bible distinguishes us from the animals by teaching us that we are made in the image of God. It doesn't teach us that animals are soulless machines. They are living creatures. In fact, that word living creatures is, means living soul. The same word to describe Adam in chapter 2 verse 7, that he became a living soul or a living creature. The animals are that as well. Now the Bible does describe animals as unreasoning, as creatures of instinct in Jude and Second Peter. But both animals and man have precious lifeblood that's discussed in Genesis 9. Both land animals and man are living souls made from the earth, come from dust, and now that we're immortal, to dust we return. Ecclesiastes 3 reflects on these similarities. 
Animals are not equal to humans, but they are important living beings entrusted to our care. And so they should be treated as uh, products of God's handiwork and as objects of his mercy. God has made them in wisdom and they are good in his eyes. He delights in them. The value of animals is not merely for their benefit from man. They were good even before man was created, although they were made good for man. But they're good even if they never come into contact with us. There are creatures at the depths of the ocean that we haven't known about until, you know, very, very recently. They've been just doing their own thing all those centuries for thousands of years. Notice the Bible speaks both that domesticated animals are good, wild animals are good. In fact, Job stresses especially the glory of wild animals. And God has compassion on them. He cares for them. He feeds them. We have dominion over them. We'll get to that very soon. But they are still his. He has the cattle on a thousand hills, and he feeds the creatures. He feeds the ravens when they cry, the young lions. Psalm 104, the psalmist says, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. They all look up to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. Or Psalm 145, reflecting on the goodness of the Lord. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Or even as the front of our bulletin says, his mercy is over all that he has made. We see the goodness, the generosity of the Lord, the kindness of the Lord throughout the creation as he sustains these living things. In the last verse of the book of Jonah, you know, Jonah ends in a very unusual way. God is speaking to Jonah and correcting him for his lack of compassion and how he got all excited about this little gourd plant that got killed. And then God says, And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? And that's how he ends the book. And also much cattle. Like, I think the 120,000 persons were really important and certainly more important. But God can also adds and also much cattle. He cared for the cattle. He had mercy on the cattle. In fact, the cattle even fasted too, if you look at what the king commanded in chapter 3. And so the animals are to be honored and cared for by us in imitation of our heavenly father. Uh, We should uh, imitate him. Our care should resemble his mercy and kindness. You know, if the doctrine of evolution is all one has, man is free to do as he likes with the animals, competing in the struggle of the survival of the fittest. Why should we seek to carry on different strains of animals and go through all of that effort? We are in a struggle. Let the fittest survive. That's at least one way you could approach it if that's all you had, but the doctrine of creation teaches us to take responsibility, to value them. The Bible teaches us not only by God's example, but simply tells us to do this. In, in Proverbs 12:10, it says, Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. There are several laws in the Bible regarding the treatment of animals. Of course, they are about more than the treatment of animals. They can be also used as an argument for lesser, 
from the lesser to the greater, if you're supposed to care for animals so much, then how much more for humans? But they still, you know, apply to animals as well. Deuteronomy 25.4, you shall not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. The principle there being that a laborer is worth is higher, uh, but would involve uh, compassion on the, the ox there that's working for you to let him eat some of the grain that he is producing or processing. Exodus 23.5, if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it you shall rescue it with him. Uh, this would both be part of the principle of loving your neighbor, even if he's your enemy, uh, but also to rescue your enemy's donkey, both him and it. Deuteronomy 22, 6 through 7. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go. But the young you may take for yourself, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long. We have some of Israel's hunting regulations here, uh, given by God, both to, to teach us to show mercy to the mother bird, who's made vulnerable there, caring for her young, and also to preserve its kind for the future, rather than hogging it all for the present. And so teaching us to show constraint and, and mercy to the animals. In Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, the fourth commandment says that on the Sabbath day, you shall not do any work, but not only you, but also your ox and your donkey and any of your livestock. As Exodus 23 says, six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. So the animals are included in the rest of the Sabbath. Finally, Genesis 9, verse 4, man's not initially given animals to eat. That, that this, the killing of animals is not part of that original harmonious order of creation. But as the story goes on and as sin enters the world and curse, uh, man is given uh, the uh, ability to, to kill and to eat the animals as God's gift. But Genesis 9 teaches that even in killing them, there still must be a respect for their life which is demonstrated by not eating their blood. Noah was told, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. There remains a, a certain respect for the life of the animal, even when he's given the ability to kill it and to eat it as God's gift. And so while animals are not divine, they're not equal to man, you should treat them with respect and with mercy as living creatures and the handiwork of God. God values and cares for them, and so should you. You can use them for your benefit, even kill them, but that does not mean that you can do anything you want with them. It does not excuse cruelty, but encourages appreciation and gratitude. On a personal note, I'll just say that I'm thankful that my parents, especially my dad, gave it an appreciation for the natural world. When I was about nine years old, I encountered a boy at our church's kids' camp. Uh, not this church, but the church we went to then. And this boy had started stomping on the butterflies that were enjoying a mud puddle. And uh, I'm not saying this is necessarily the best reaction, but I flew into a rage with tears in my eyes, pushed him out of the way, tackled him to the ground. Uh, I began an in, in instinctual respect for things like butterflies. 
Now, it might come as a surprise, though, that that instinct was given by collecting butterflies, where we would indeed kill them, you know, and pin them in a box and get to see all the different kinds of butterflies. But that actually taught me respect and appreciation. Uh, I was also delighted the next year to find that I could hunt. But while that might seem surprising, it is, after all, the gardener that appreciates his plants the most. We learn about God's creation and learn to respect it as well. Whenever my dad and I would go fishing or butterfly collecting or picture taking or hunting, the goal was not only to catch the fish or the butterflies or to get to the end of the trail, but also to take delight in what God had made, to wonder at it, to appreciate it, to learn how things worked, to admire God's living creatures. And so there's a difference between killing animals out of cruelty and killing animals with appreciation, responsibility, and use. The dominion of might exercises power over nature because it can. There is no authorization, no accountability, and that's what that's as far as evolution gets you. But the dominion of right exercises power over nature because it has been given that authority, and it presupposes a higher authority, and it engenders respect. So my dad taught me to see nature as God's creation, something that proclaimed the beauty and nature of our creator, and that meant that there was worth beyond our use of it, and our use of it was a gift. It's designed for the glory of God. And so our use was a gift given by him, and that inspired a grateful use, not a selfish plunder or a guilty regret. And I think our society alternates usually between those two, selfish uh, plunder and then guilty regret. The third error I want to come to is that of apathy. We can think too highly of the animals. We can think too lowly of the animals. We also could just not think about the animals, and that would be the third error, especially a, a modern error. You know, past ages, you probably had to think about animals. Um, they're just all, all around you and dependent upon them. Uh, but it's tempting today to go about life without thinking about the animals and their vast display and diversity, simply to not think about them. But as Psalm 111.2 says, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them study the animals, meditate upon them. Psalm 104 is a great model. Ends with, let the meditation of of my heart be acceptable to you. What was his meditation? He just thought about all of the things that God had made and what God had done for them and how that revealed God's character. Consider the spiders. That was one of Jonathan Edwards' loves as as a young man investigating the spiders, even made it into one of his famous sermons, but even before it was a sermon illustration, it was something he loved studying. Think of the ants. Think of the butterflies. Think of the morning doves or the squirrels or the box turtles or the black rat snakes and the skinks. That's just in our suburban home. You can find all, not in the home necessarily, but around the home, sometimes in the home. Go to a conservation area. You can find the great blue heron, white-tailed deer, colorful little darters that are this big but look like tropical animals, or the catfish. Now, I could visit some of you and, and see uh, horses and cattle and chickens and pigs. The earth is truly filled with living creatures. Every nook and cranny 
you, you can find a whole world of living organisms that are living and being cared for and operating according to God's blessing. So watch them, consider them, study them. The animals should fill you with a godly awe and gratitude. God doesn't need you. He has a cattle on a thousand hills. He, he doesn't care about you giving him a goat or a sacrifice. Uh, he wants you to call upon him. And he's made the animals quite beneficial to man for food now and for clothing and for work and for the care of the earth, for beauty and for study. He made man rich before man ever existed. Before a man earned anything, the world was already full. And yet man did not acknowledge God or give thanks. He worshipped the creature rather than the creator. And you two have sinned against this Lord, this generous Lord, this powerful Lord. You participate in this rebellion, transgressing his commands, forsaking the post of honor given by God, and forsaking true wisdom, sinful man becomes like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. Put to shame by the animals themselves, like Balaam was put to shame by his donkey. As God said in Jeremiah 8, Even the stork in the heavens knows her times, and the turtle dove, swallow, and crane keep the time of their coming, but my people know not the rules of the Lord. Therefore the Son of God humbled himself for your salvation. God became man that he might renew man in God's image. And so Jesus humbled himself, saying, Foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And like a lamb led to the slaughter, he died for your salvation, that you might be raised again to glory and honor. And if God has ransomed you at such a price, will he not care for you? Remember his mercy that is displayed throughout the earth. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? God does not honor man by denigrating animals, but he values animals and then argues from the lesser to the greater. How much more for you? So God fill the waters, the lands, the, the heavens with living creatures. Don't worship them or treat them as equal to man. Do not treat them with contempt or cruelty, and don't ignore them either. Behold the power and wisdom of God. Treat them with respect and gratitude. Care for them. Make responsible use for them, giving thanks. And meditate upon them. Study them that you might be a good steward and that you might gain a heart of wisdom. Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you for the living creatures that you have filled the earth with all around us as they proclaim your praise, uh, living in accordance with your word, created by your power and wisdom, testifying to your greatness and to your mercy and goodness. We thank you for having mercy upon us, for giving us glory and honor both in our original creation and through the redemption given in your Son. We pray that you would teach us wisdom as we see the world around us, that you would also help us to be responsible stewards of the world that you have made. We thank you for the great gifts you have given us without our earning, without our merit, uh, and we thank you for the generosity that you show us in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.